We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of the Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. In this episode, the neoconservatives' war against the Middle East, the imperialist agenda before and after the September 11th attacks. The late evening and hours of September 11, 2001 at the CIA's Bin Laden issue station were highly busy, roaming the floors after evacuating the premises earlier during the frantic hours of the attacks. As the evening hours passed, those who were left were slowly coming back in and expected to work long hours as intelligence started to pour in at every cable station around the world as never seen before. The passenger lists from the hijacked airliners from American and United Airlines passed through the counterintelligence center. The lists were handed to one official from the Customs Office of Intelligence, where it was handed eventually to George Tennant, the director of the CIA, to which he remarked in awe with mouth slightly agape, oh my God, it's all of them. Meanwhile, just a few miles away, the National Security Council, along with some of the highest officials of government, were holding a meeting which tried to make sense of the data and show who was capable of the terrorist attacks. Stephen Cambone, the principal deputy undersecretary of defense for policy, began taking notes. American Airlines 77, three individuals have been followed since Millennium and Cole. One guy is associate of Cole Bomber. Two entered U.S. in early July. Two or three pulled aside and interrogated. Over in Sana, Yemen, Ali Soufan and Bob McFadden were waiting to leave back to New York City when Dina Corsi began calling Soufan, asking him to return back to the hotel where they were staying and wait for an important fax. Soufan looked at McFadden with his weary and semi-brooding look at the message. Both were given a ride back while the facts slowly unveiled the cable. A local CIA liaison officer glanced at the contents. His astonishment was clear. The facts had the photographs of Khalid al-Midar and Awaf al-Hazmi while they were outside the residence of Yazid Sufat during a high-level al-Qaeda summit meeting in Malaysia. Sufan was handed its contents and immediately recognized the faces but this time, he now had the names. They were both involved in the hijacking of American Airlines Flight 77, which crashed into the Pentagon earlier. Soufan, sickened by the sight, ran to the nearest bathroom to 
vomit. For he realized that the CIA had withheld this information for 16 months. 16 months. He and his boss, John O'Neill, who perished in the North Tower, have been asking the CIA's ALG station for what seemed like an eternity about any information regarding Khalad, who later was found out to be Waleed bin Atash, and anyone else involved with the coal and the 1998 East Africa embassy bombings, only to be given the runaround and even outright denials from not just former chief, uh, station chief Michael Scheuer, but his current chief, Richard Blee, of the Alex station. The State Department, however, would hold multiple briefings, which included members of the Vulcans, a nickname given to the astute neoconservative faction of President George W. Bush's cabinet, named after the Roman god of fire. Paul Wolfowitz, Don Rumsfeld, Dal Zakheim, Richard Pearl, Condoleezza Rice, and Richard Armitage. Some of these people would have massive influence within the foreign policy team while having close connections with the Israeli lobby. Pearl himself had declared Iraq the primary suspect for the terrorist attacks against the United States, an opinion shared mainly by the Bush's most ardent supporters. But not to those of the intelligence community, especially not Richard Clark of the National Security Council. Clark knew all too well that this was the work of bin Laden and al-Qaeda, Afghanistan, and even to an extent, Saudi Arabia. Wolfowitz had years ago drafted a paper, the Defense Planning Guidance, which better known as the Wolfowitz Doctrine. Its primary goals were to announce the United States as the sole superpower after Soviet defeat in Afghanistan in 1989, with its primary objectives outlined below. Quote, Our first objective is to prevent the reemergence of a new rival, either on the territory of the former Soviet Union or elsewhere, that poses a threat on the order of that posed formerly by the Soviet Union. This is a dominant consideration underlying the new regional defense strategy and requires that we endeavor to prevent any hostile power from dominating a region whose resources would, under consolidated control, be sufficient to generate global power, end quote. With the United States leading the way as the military force for the New World, it also outlined the following, quote, The U.S. must show the leadership necessary to establish and protect a new order that holds the promise of convincing potential competitors that they need not aspire to a greater role or pursue a more aggressive posture to protect their legitimate interests. In non-defensive areas, we must account sufficiently for the interests of the advanced industrial nations to discourage them from challenging our leadership or seeking to overturn the established political and economic order. We must maintain the mechanism for deterring potential competitors from even aspiring to a larger regional or global role. End quote. The paper was leaked to the New York Times, and the public declared the document as infringing upon imperialism. It was immediately met with resistance and seen as too soon after the Gulf War had just ended months prior. However, these same tenets would be revisited by, but this time, with far more support behind it under the Bush Doctrine. Some outlines were, quote, make no distinction between terrorists and their nations that harbor them and hold both to account. Take the fight to the enemy overseas before they can attack us again here at home. Confront threats before they fully materialize. 
advance liberty and hope as an alternative to the enemy's ideology of repression and fear, end quote. The essence behind the doctrine was simple. Authorize the use of preemptive war with a unilateral effect behind it. The influence behind these doctrines and ideals come directly from former National Security Advisor to U.S. President Jimmy Carter, Zygmunt Brzezinski's grand chessboard outline for the United States as being the primary force in the world. Brzezinski, in 1973, helped to co-found, along with David Rockefeller, the Trilateral Commission, a nonpartisan group to foster substantive political and economic dialogue across the world, including the Middle East and Southeast Asia. However, Brzezinski was not part of the Leo Strauss neoconservative school of thought and was hardly referenced in the affairs involving Wolfowitz, Elliot Abrams, Donald Wimsworth, or Douglas Fife. They were an incredibly different kind of neocon, one in which shared the ideals of the more strict nationalists which dominate the Israeli right-wing party, the Likud, headed by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, diametrically opposed when it came to their religious orientation, but closely aligned when it came to the geopolitical nature involving the Middle East. Bush was pressuring his top officials to find a link between Iraq and al-Qaeda, Clark was left to an impossible task, one in which he would know he had no answer for. Up next was the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, Robert Mueller, who also saw no connection. Finally, it was up to CIA Director George Tenet. And throughout most of its long, married history, the CIA will find a way to connect two opposing objects. In short time, Tenet birdied the president. There was a connection. Saddam Hussein's Iraqi Ba'athist army had met with unnamed al-Qaeda subjects and was seen making chemical weapons, sarin gas to be precise. This information had come from Ibn al-Sheikh al-Libi, a Libyan national who was captured in Afghanistan and sent to a CIA black site where he would undergo torture from his captives. His admissions regarding al-Qaeda in Iraq were as follows, quote, Iraq, acting on the request of al-Qaeda militant Abu Abala, who is Mohammed Atef's emissary, agreed to provide unspecified chemical or biological weapons training for two al-Qaeda associates beginning in December of 2000. The two individuals departed for Iraq but did not return, so al-Libi was not in position to know if any training had taken place, end quote. This information would later be used in Colin Powell's speech made before the United Nations Security Council in 2003 but it would turn out to be false. Al Libby had told his captors anything to stop from torturing him, including the Iraq-Al-Qaeda connection, but by then it was too late. On September 13, 2001, Tenet would arrive with counterterrorism chief Kofer Black at the White House and meet with the National Security Council's top officials in regards to a draft plan to capture or kill Osama bin Laden in toppling the Taliban from power in Afghanistan. Black tells Bush that the war itself could last weeks, but a sure victory will be declared if given the right manpower to conduct it. Black would go on to say, Americans are going to die. How many? I don't know. Could be a lot. To which Bush responded, that's war. That's what we're here to win. The operation was codenamed Jawbreaker. Black had given the operation's responsibilities to Harry Crumpton, his top man, the head of operations, and imposed a final declaration to him. Your mission is to find al-Qaeda, 
engage it, and destroy it. Meanwhile, bin Laden, along with his family and top al-Qaeda leadership, Ayman al-Swahari, Suleiman Abu Ghaith, and Mohammed Atef, had to flee as they prepared for an American military response in Afghanistan, leaving the Taliban to conduct defense. Between September 14th and 19th, prominent members of the Saudi royal family and bin Laden family had high-level clearance from the State Department to leave the country while it was under a nationwide aviation lockdown. Clark had no choice but to go along as this came predictably from Bush himself. Preparations were underway for a full-scale military attack in Afghanistan while factions of the neocons began making plans to try and connect Iraq to the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, even if it was using faulty intelligence or even outright fictitious data. The National Security Agency, the primary entity behind the Signals Intelligence Collection program, and whom were monitoring the satellite phone of bin Laden between the years 1992 to 1998, while also in the monitoring the phones of an al-communications hub in Sana, Yemen, owned by Ahmed al-Hada between 1996 and 2002. The agency itself had become far too insular and didn't share its intelligence with anyone, but managed to get a free pass to conduct operations by Bush. Thomas Drake, former NSA senior executive, had stated that the terrorist attacks didn't have to take place due to the agency's metadata collection of those involved, which could have stopped the attacks from transpiring in a whole. Drake would later say, quote, Our primary responsibility as an intelligence agency was to provide indicators of warning, and we obviously failed to do that, end quote. This after Drake had met with NSA analysts tasked to the Al-Qaeda communications hub, where he was handed a reprint in hard copy form, where the NSA had accurately mapped in extensive detail bin Laden's network cells and associated movements. It was an extraordinary detailed long-term study of al-Qaeda's activities that had also identified the planning cells and operations for September 11, 2001. Muhammad Atta, Khalid al-Midar, and Nawab al-Hazmi had been known to the NSA since early 2000. Yet this information was never shared with any outside agency. This information was collected using William Binney's own creation, ThinThread. However, the NSA had begun to use a new intelligence program, which would not only encrypt data, protecting its primary account, but allow for data to be unprotected. It would later be called Trailblazer. During the White House's cabinet meetings in November 17 to 24, 2001, Rumsfeld had begun taking to task the connections between Iraq and possible chemical weapons enrichment used in the latest attacks, the anthrax letters attacks, where contaminated letters sent to specific media outlets and Senators Tom Daschle and Patrick Leahy were later found to contain anthrax, a deadly chemical compound which could have the toxicity to kill a person if left untreated. The Arab World League would hold, world, would hold meetings during the troubled period. While at a meeting in Beirut in March of 2002, they devised the Arab Peace Initiative, a 10-sentence proposal for an end to the Arab-Israeli conflict. During the meeting, Saudi Crown Prince Abdullah remarked, quote, In spite of all that has happened and what still may happen, the primary issue in the heart and mind of every person in our Arab-Islamic nation is the restoration of legitimate rights in Palestine, Syria, and Lebanon. 
We believe in taking up arms in self-defense and to deter aggression. But we also believe in peace when it is based on justice and equity and when it brings an end to conflict. Only within the context of true peace can normal relations flourish between the people of the region and allow the region to pursue development rather than war. In light of the above, and with your backing and that of the Almighty, I propose that the Arab Summit put forward a clear and unanimous initiative addressed to the United Nations Security Council based on two basic issues. Normal relations and security for Israel in exchange for full withdrawal from all occupied Arab territories. Recognition of an independent Palestinian state with Al-Quds al-Sharif as its capital and the return of refugees, end quote. The initiative would be put on hold, however, as the proposals for Israel were halted by the opposition to the declaration, including Syria's Bashir al-Assad, who remarked that the Palestinians have a unilateral right to armed resistance to Israeli military aggression. But it was during the Al-Aqsa Intifada, the second Intifada, which halted any progression toward the initiative. And while the Israeli government put tax tasks on hold, it was left to the Bush cabinet to produce evidence of Iraqi involvement in the September 11th attacks. He eventually got what he initially wished. Former Deputy Director for Central Intelligence Richard Kerr was tasked to lead a review of agency analysis of Iraqi weapons of mass destruction claims. One report was unclassified, called Intelligence and Analysis on Iraq, Issues for the Intelligence Community. Kerr had felt the heat coming from the Bush White House regarding his findings. He would later on, quote, a lot of analysts believed that they were being pressured to come to certain conclusions. I talked to a lot of people who said that there was a lot of repetitive questioning. We were being asked to justify what we were saying again and again. There were certainly people who felt they were being pushed beyond the evidence they had, end quote. Valerie Plame, a former CIA case officer whose husband, Joseph C. Wilson IV, had been sent to Niger to investigate the claims that Iraq had intended to purchase uranium nitrate, yellow cake, claims which turned out to be false. But the CIA, along with its minimal information, began constructing a written paper to be produced before the United Nations. But who would deliver the address to make it all the more believable? The selection was obvious. Colin Powell, the Secretary of State, a refreshing face from a rancid collection of masks out of the State Department, was chosen to give the address. He was liked by the American people, as well as universally respected. On February 5, 2003, Powell, with CIA Director Tennant sitting directly behind him, gave his resoundingly clear speech about Iraq and their production of chemical weapons, which was linked to the September 11th attacks. The speech came with cartoon computer-generated designs that would make any inspector viewed with suspicion. Was this really enough to go to war over? Handcrafted designs of underground caves and not a single actual photograph to show for it? The United Nations approved of the presentation. But according to The Intercept, Powell told outright fabrications to the committee without Powell's knowledge. Powell remarked, quote, 
Iraq's record on chemical weapons is replete with lies. It took years for Iraq to finally admit that it had produced four tons of the deadly nerve agent VX. A single drop of VX on the skin will kill in minutes. Four tons. The emission only came out after inspectors collected documentation as a result of the deflection of Hussein Kamal, Saddam Hussein's late son-in-law. As far as this went, this was accurate. However, Kamal, the head of Iraqi's weapon, weapon uh, protection programs, defected in 1995. Iraq had produced its VX before the Gulf War in 1991. And according to Kamal, Iraq had secretly destroyed it soon after the war. Then they lied about ever producing it until his defection. But according to Kamal, they weren't lying when they said they no longer had it, end quote, from The Intercept. Afghanistan was bin Laden's vision of America's Vietnam, just as the country saw the Soviet Union back in 1979. Bin Laden knew about the American response, which would be enormous in military might. He wanted to draw the Americans into a quagmire, which would drain the country financially, spending billions on a war which they could not win. As of this day, they are still in conflict with the country, which has cost the American taxpayer to the tune of $2.4 trillion. Bin Laden's wish came true. With the United Nations Security Council approval for war, the Bush Doctrine began its initial phases. This document was not only the neocons' plans for regional military dominance, the Israelis also had a doctrine, very much alike the neocons. It was entitled A Strategy for Israel in the 1980s, or known as the Yinan Plan, named after its architect Oded Yinan, a former advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon. The document entails weaknesses within the surrounding Arab countries and how to capitulate upon said weaknesses and use it for a broader geopolitical advantage using the United States coalition powers. Political commentator and newspaper columnist Linda S. Hurd once remarked about the influence of Yodin Yanan plan in the Bush Doctrine, quote, There is one thing that we do know. Oded Yanan's 1982 Zionist plan for the Middle East is in large part taking shape. Is this pure coincidence? Was Yanan a gifted psychic? Perhaps. Alternatively, we, are in the, we in the West are victims of a long-held agenda, not of our making, and without doubt, not in our interests. End quote. The strategy was to separate the Arab powers. They included Syria, Egypt, Lebanon, Jordan, and Iraq. Yanan's strategy for Iraq was as follows, quote, the dissolution of Syria and Iraq into ethnically or religiously unique areas, such as in Lebanon, is Israel's primary target on the eastern front Iraq, rich in oil on the one hand and internally torn on the other, is guaranteed as a candidate for Israel's targets. Its dissolution is even more important for us than that of Syria. Iraq is stronger than Syria. In the short run, it is Iraqi power which constitutes the greatest threat to Israel. An Iraqi-Iranian war will tear apart Iraq apart and cause its downfall at home even before it is able to organize or struggle on a wide front against us. Every kind of inter-Arab confrontation will assist us in the short run and will shorten the way to the more important aim of breaking up Iraq into denominations 
as in Syria and Lebanon. In Iraq, a division into provinces along ethnic religious lines, as in Syria, during Ottoman times is possible. So three or more states will exist around the three major cities, Basra, Baghdad, and Mosul, and Shiite areas in the south will separate from the Sunni and Kurdish north, end quote. But the question remained, what evidence was there linking Iraq to terrorism in general? Even after the fabricated evidence from the CIA through the torture of Sheikh al-Libi, even after Colin Powell's speech given to the UN Security Council with its fabricated contents, surely there must have been some indirect evidence at the very least. According to Richard Pearl, it was a matter of our word. In a frontline interview taken on, Feb on January 23, 2003, Pearl explains how the Bush White House came to the conclusion about Iraq and Al-Qaeda connection. Question. How significant is the fact that on 9-11 that evening, the president immediately steps up to not fighting a group of terrorists, but bringing it to sponsor states? And then, soon after, at Camp David, Rumsfeld is bringing up the possibility that perhaps we should be looking at Iraq here. Pearl. I think September 11th is the precipitating event, and it was in part because the lesson of September 11th was that if you ignore problems, they don't go away. Because everything we did after September 11th to go after al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, which was its national base, if you will, could have been done before September 11th. And had it been done before September 11th, there's every reason to believe we would not only have avoided September 11th and the death of 3,000 people, but we might well have been able to largely destroy al-Qaeda because it was all in one place. By the time we understood the danger we were in and went after al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, they were dispersed all over the place. So it's going to take us years to deal with the al-Qaeda diaspora, which would have been avoided if we acted first. And on September 11th, the president made it what I think is probably the most important statement in all the statements by him and others, and that was that we would not distinguish between the terrorists and the countries that harbor them. Because we will never defeat terrorism if terrorists can organize free, if they have the run of the sanctuary in which to train, recruit, and plan, so we have to make life difficult for the terrorists that they can't be effective. And going after countries that harbor them has to be the critical element. Question. Follow up on that. The basic question. What does a war against Iraq have to do with the fight against terrorism? Pearl. Well, I think the relationship between the fight against terrorism and dealing with Saddam Hussein is complicated, but very clear. For one thing, Saddam Hussein harbors terrorists. He's done it for years and years. There are terrorists today living in Baghdad and carrying out operations when they have opportunities to do so. Secondly, we now have clearly established links between al-Qaeda and Iraqi intelligence, links that are beyond dispute. We've gone back and looked at the evidence that was never properly investigated before, old evidence, but looked at the light of recent experience. And we find meetings between al-Qaeda and Iraqi intelligence, training programs in Iraq for al-Qaeda and agreements, something that has been called a non-aggression pact, but it's really a friendship and cooperation pact between al-Qaeda and the Iraqis. So there's a clear established relationship there as well. But lastly, 
if the United States war against terrorism consists of destroying the Taliban in Afghanistan, and we then recoil from dealing effectively with Saddam Hussein, we will set a threshold. We will be saying to terrorists, go locate in a country that's a bit bigger and you're home free because we won't challenge you. A country that's a little bit bigger. So I believe that even if we had not gone as far as we have now gone, at which point turning back has its own catastrophic consequences, even if we were not where we are today, a failure to come to grips with Iraq would gravely diminish our ability to win the war on terrorism, end quote. But the planning stages for war in the Middle East couldn't have been any more clearly stated than in the neocon think tank document called the Project for the New American Century, created in 1997. The chairman was a longtime neocon understudy, William Crystal, who once served as the chief of staff to the vice president under Dan Quayle in 1989. He co-founded the PNAC committee along with Robert Kagan. Of the 25 people who signed PNAC's founding statement of principles, 10 went on to serve in the administration of President George Bush, which included Paul Wolfowitz, Donna Rumsfeld, and Dick Cheney. In January 2002, both Crystal and Kagan wrote an article in the Weekly Standard entitled, What to Do About Iraq. Both men asserted, by citing dubious evidence, that Iraq had personally trained Mohammed Atta and the use of hijacking airliners. Quote, Reliable reports from defectors and former UN weapons inspectors have confirmed the existence of a terrorist training camp in Iraq, complete with a Boeing 707 for practicing hijackings and filled with non-Iraqi radical Muslims. We know, too, that Mohammed Atta, the ringleader of September 11th, went out of his way to meet with an Iraqi intelligence official a month before he flew a plane into the World Trade Center. As Leon Flirth understates, they may well have been interaction between Mr. Hussein's intelligence apparatus and various terrorist networks, including that of Osama bin Laden. End quote. The PNAC's committee stated goal? American leadership is good both for America and for the world and sought to build support for a Reaganite policy of military strength and moral clarity. The document was clearly outlined and seen as sheer American militant dominance in the region and by destabilizing Iraq and ensuring peace within the region through said military force, but this could not be feasible in the allotted time frame. Quote, Further, the process of transformation even if it brings revolutionary change, is likely to be a long one, absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor, end quote. Even with the collapse of the committee in 2006, the agendas outlined in all the above documents and committees all came to fruition. The September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks was the catalyst for these geopolitical goals which could still be seen today as we continue to militarily involve ourselves in Arab countries such as Syria, Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, and Pakistan. Former U.S. Army General Wesley Clark, in his book, A Time to Lead for Duty Honor a Country, wrote that the decision to evade Iraq was made just a few short days after the 9-11 attacks, a startling revelation. Quote, the general recalls two visits at the Pentagon. The first, between September 25, 2001, a senior general told him, we're going to attack Iraq. 
the decision has basically been made. Six weeks later, very close to Britain's Guy Fawkes Day, on November 5th, Clark returned to Washington to see the same general and inquired whether the plan to strike Iraq was still under consideration. The general's response was a surprise to Clark. Oh, it's worse than that, he said, holding up a memo on his desk. Here's the paper from the office of the Secretary of Defense, then Donald Rumsfeld, outlining the strategy. We're going to take out seven countries in five years. And he named them, starting with Iraq, Syria, and ending with Iran. End quote. The actionable intelligence received before the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, was not only the damning evidence for government and intelligence community malfeasance, but surely, with the stated principles and goals made by the neoconservatives and Israeli government officials, we very well may have evidence of premeditated use for these terrorist attacks in New York City and Washington, D.C., to extrapolate on the geopolitical agendas and stated goals by these warmongering psychopaths. The real crimes, which came at the allotted cost of over 1 million Iraqis, over 7,000 American servicemen and women, over 7,000 Afghans, an untold amount in the rest of the Arabian Peninsula. These are the people who mattered, not the draconian bureaucrats here or in Israel and Saudi Arabia who only valued human life as a cost-benefit for their selfish geopolitical agendas. That ends this episode of The Dark and Dower. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald.